Hi everybody, thanks for downloading the latest episode of the show. Um, Chris and I are recording these remotely at the moment, so do bear with us if you hear any technical glitches or there's some sound um, issues. Um, it's just me and him this week, um, but it's a good one. Bed knobs and broomsticks as chosen by you, the listeners, as part of our Feel Good Fan Anim series. If I could just ask you for a quick favour before it starts, um, we are always trying to increase our invisibility on platforms like Spotify, Podbean, uh, Apple Podcasts, wherever you download this from. Um, so what you could do would really help us if you could go and give us either a five-star star rating, um, or even better, a very short review. It doesn't have to be more than a couple of sentences, but those reviews really help us fly up the rankings. We're doing really well at the moment, um, but I'd like to, us to keep improving. So please, it'll take 20 seconds of your time. If you could just do that quickly now, perhaps, um, and we'll uh, continue to make these episodes for you to to enjoy. Thanks. Bed, take us to 8 Winchfield Road. Madam, is this vehicle safe? Oh, perfectly safe. A bit theatrical perhaps, but then most good spells are. Hello again, listeners. Welcome back to the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I am, of course, and as always, Alex. I am. You change this every week. I am, of course, and always, Chris. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Um, And in this episode, we're doing um, a film picked by you as part of our fan anime competition online. um, And that film is Bedknobs and Broomsticks, the Disney live action um, animation hybrid um, from 1972, I believe. 70s, I think. 70s. We're off to we're off to a good start. Uh, it's from you know that era, um, and uh, we're recording this remotely, of course, because um, because lockdown still remains. How is lockdown for you, Chris? Yes, it's good. I mean, this is um, this feel good fan anime has given me a real roster of films to to watch um, and to kind of familiarise myself with, as will become evident over the next hour or so. I was not familiar. I was familiar with Breadknobs and Broomsticks, but I've never watched it before. So this was this was a real treat because it sort of went up and down and through and and <laughs> dare I say it bobbed along in lots of different directions. So um, yeah, one of the one of the upshots of, of of I suppose lockdown is is hearing lots and lots of um, listeners' views on the kinds of films that are sort of getting them through, the kinds of films that they're turning to, uh, and then obviously for us it gives us a chance to then watch those films, and in this case, watch something for the first time. Yeah, I, I was revisiting it, but I think it's been, uh, oh, 20 years, I reckon I saw it. No, that's a lie, I probably rewatched it in the early stages of my um, PhD research, so probably around um, oh, eight, nine years ago now, but um but probably watched it and dismissed it as I'm not going to talk about this in my project. So we'll just move on. Um, and probably wrongly dismissed it a little bit as being kind of um, subpar Mary Poppins. And it is a little bit, it does taste a little of reheated Mary Poppins, but um, not necessarily in a bad way. And also it does do other interesting things. So I, I, I enjoyed revisiting it too. It's an odd little thing though. It's sort of, well, it's not little, but it's sort of a different film every 20 minutes or so, which is a sort of very, um, it's very episodic, but not necessarily in a bad way. No, absolutely. I, um, I, I, of course, as I'm sure many have done since and will continue to do, make the sort of Mary Poppins, the reheated, it smells, it has a, a faint whiff of, of Cherry Tree Lane, but um, it also chimed for me with... Um, with the set with Mary Poppins Returns, you know, in terms of its episodic sure. structure and its series of set pieces. Yeah, you're right. The film is is 
um, strange. And, and what I quite like about it is that it moves between um, a sort of, I don't know, a, it has a bit of animation and then it's sort of a, um, a, a children's, I guess, family film rooted in sort of magic and fantasy and dreaming. And uh, and then we get the Nazis and we get the Home Guard <laughs> and the National Cause and, and things like this. And, and so we get, uh, I think one of the Nazis at one point when he's towards the end of the film says that's a, He's looking at um, an army of, of sort of sentient um, suits of armor. So that's a pretty good trick. And I was thinking about, and the whole way the film manages to move quite quite nicely between these victory for England and St. George and then bobbing along, bobbing along. So I, I really enjoyed the quite abrupt tonal shifts of the of the film. So I'm, I'm excited to, to sort of make our way through them. So it's, it's 1971, by the way. I've surreptitiously looked it up. So neither of us were right. So that's uh, that's all legitimacy out of the window. Um, so yeah, well, should we address the Mary Poppins problem very quickly and, and, and hopefully won't return to it again? Um, so the film's 1971, as I've just uh, Googled. So this is, you know, five, six years after the success of Mary Poppins. And, um, there's a sort of Disney spend about a decade trying to make another Mary Poppins. I don't know the reasons why they didn't make a sequel at the time. They didn't make loads of sequels during this era, but they certainly made some serialized sort of narrative so i don't know necessarily why they didn't then adapt another mary poppins book um i suspect it might have something to do with travers's aversion to the adaptation pl travers but they, they they chose not to go down that road they tried to sort of emulate it elsewhere um if anyone else is interested in this era i can recommend the gnome mobile which is another disney technicolor musical starring the mary poppins kids and it's literally they're literally credited as the mary poppins kids and that follows this same template of having this sort of supernatural being possessed with magical powers, enter into a, an otherwise historical but stylized reality. They go on a series of stylized adventures. There's an animation sequence at one point, and then um, and then they all come back and reality kicks in or, or doesn't kick in in this respect. Um, but there are shades of this attempt to sort of recapture the magic of Mary Poppins um, throughout this this film, it's it's production wise, it's directed by the same director. The Sherman Brothers return again, um, the, the, who made the songs in the original one. Uh, there's some you know casting. Uh, David Tomlinson, we are blessed by him returning once again in a different role, but uh, sort of you know riffing on his star persona. So you know, and the, the basic story beats are, are pretty you know it's hard, it's not hard to spot the similarities between the two. Um, so, so that's that out of the way. It's a bit like Mary Poppins. Um, what is it not? What isn't it like then? What is it? How that? How does it feel to watch it for the first time, Chris? Um, with all that knowledge of Mary Poppins, that makes it feel like a very different kind of movie. Um, that's a that's a that's a very good question. I mean, I when I was watching it, my mind I think was going in lots and lots of different directions and was and was prompting questions that I would like to to ask you, I guess, on air, and I'll and I'll um, I'll. I'll uh, hint at what they might be in terms of the role of children, um, what mm -hmm. low fantasy is in relation to high fantasy, because let's not forget this film was based on a, a book by Mary Norton, whose name immediately chimed in terms of the borrowers. And so I have sure. questions about low fantasy, about um, immersive again and intrusive. Is there a connection between low fantasy and immersive fantasy? Um, I guess one of the things that made it not like Mary Poppins, I mean, there are lots of things, as you said, that make it very like Mary Poppins. Um, the credit sequence that flagged up a lot of names for me beyond the names that you've mentioned um, in terms of the animation credits. So the animation director, Ward Kimball, um, and then another animator, Milt Carl, who worked on the film, both of which are two of Disney's nine old men. Um, and so mm. the aesthetic of the film is very, the animated portions, I would say, are very, very Disney. The way it's actually not like Mary Poppins is the way it looks like the Jungle Book. 
So this is, uh, I think, four years after The Jungle Book. And there are a couple of characters within the animation sequence that look that, that might as well be Baloo and Bagheera in terms of the design. So one of the ways the film is not like Mary Poppins is the way it's a lot like The Jungle Book in lots of ways. Um, That's interesting because I, I watched it um, and uh, me and my partner noticed that there's a lot of um, references to Robin Hood mm. um, in the film. Well, I don't know references, but again, like there are echoes as much of... Um, of uh, I hadn't thought about the Jungle Book a little bit, perhaps, but you're right. There's a bear character sort of as they wash up on shore. That's very basically Baloo in a sailor suit, right? Um, yeah. And then, but but then there's also things that very much echo um, or precursor. I'm not quite sure when Robin Hood came out. My dates are all over. I can, I can I can tell. So that's the Robin Hood thing is really interesting because Robin Hood was released in '73. So actually, this film, um, Bed right. Broomsticks, is sort of the bridge between the Jungle Book and, and Robin Hood, and very famously. Um, if I remember that Robin Hood itself was a film, so Disney's animated film from 73 was very sort of famously made up or comprised of reused animation. And one of the films that it reused was The Jungle Book, which is why um, a lot of the characters from Disney's version of Robin Hood look a lot like some of the characters from The Jungle Book. Um, so there's an interesting, I think, play, this 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 Bedknobs and Broomsticks fits quite nicely in terms of how it's sort of gesturing back or looking back to the Jungle Book in terms of some of its character designs. Um, and I hadn't thought of the Robin Hood thing, but I think you're absolutely right. Given the, the industrial relationship between Disney's Robin Hood and Disney's Jungle Book, it makes perfect sense that Bedknobs and Broomsticks is going to be a film that gestures to both. Well, what you know, what struck me is one. There's some character design elements, but actually, the things that really struck us was, um, uh, like the, the the sort of character beats. So you've got this sort of, um, you know, ill-tempered king that spends a lot of his time sort of shouting at this sort of weedy, thin um, character. So this in in Bedknobs and Brooks, it's this sort of ostrichy, bird-like figure in a sort of butler's suit, but very much is the dynamic between him and the king is very similar to the dynamic between King John and Car in um Hiss in Robin Hood. Um you've got uh and, and the sort of that the way that plays out. So I don't know, I mean I, I know nothing about um the the process behind this creation, but it almost feels like they're trying out character and story ideas um in this production that then they then used in Robin Hood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well I, I was thinking of um I was thinking of Little John in the Disney uh, yeah. version that looks, you know, he is he is Baloo in all but name, uh, and is very similar as we've said to the Fisherman Bear in in mm -hmm. Bedknobs and Broomsticks. So um, yeah, no, I mean I don't know. It's a, I'd like to know a bit more about the production of the film that sort and maybe push against its um, faux Mary Poppins identity and actually place it not within that lineage but place it would be interesting to place it within a disney feature animation lineage to sort of see the importance of films like mary poppins and bedknobs and broomsticks to the development of disney's animated feature film uh, canon to see whether those movies as you say played out or, or experimented with or were spaces in which there was a um a moment of creativity where these animators and, and the same animators that would that would work on, on a lot of these movies um, were playing out ideas and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I think it's it, one of the ways that it, the film isn't about Mary Poppins is is perhaps what the film has to say or how it can be made to say something about Disney animation of the period. And I guess while we're on the animation sequence, the other thing that did strike me, um, the way that sequence is used in the film of Ben Nelson Broomsticks as opposed to Mary Poppins is that 
they both have these episodic structures, the, the two films, and the animation very much both sort of formally and as part of the narrative feels like a um, a journey away from the main thrust of the narrative in both films to an extent. Um, in Mary Poppins, perhaps even more so, though, because it's literally, you know, it's a jolly holiday sequence. They um, jump into the painting, they have some fun within the painting, everything within the painting is sort of, you know, they, they go on a horse race, they do all those things. Um, none of it matters in terms of what's just come before it, and none of it really matters to what's coming after. Um, they jump back out of the painting and they get on with the rest of the movie. Mm. Um, but in this film, actually, there is an attempt, at least to build up to that sequence, as of establishing some level of narrative stakes, in that there is a reason they go to this island of, um, I knew I'd forget it, so I tried to write it down, Nabumbu, I believe it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Nabumbu, I got it right. I'm, I'm so amazed yeah. I, had to, I had to double check. Uh, Nabumbu, um, they go to this island on a purpose to, to fetch this star that's around the king's neck so that the um, so, uh, so the witch character played by um, Angela Lansbury can, can perform her spell. So there is this attempt to sort of ground the story that this animated sequence within a narrative consequence. And also, there's a suggestion that the world of the there's a sort of very slippery relationship between the world of the island and the world of reality in that is this a distant island that they could get to physically, geographically? Is it in an alternative world? There's a sort of whole law surrounding this island that, that they play with. So there is a there is a difference between what the, the animated sequence is doing within these two films as well. Yeah, that's that's right. So this is the, the sequence. Um, so I guess it, it, it takes up about... 25 minutes it's, it's quite a substantial mm. sequence that involves the um uh, getting of this star of astaroth which as you say is this star this sort of pendant that's around um king leonidas's neck uh, and ultimately the characters have got to go and take it and actually bring it back to the to the to the live action world but you're absolutely right there's a sense in in mary poppins that they are leaping into just something that within the context of the film has been marked out uh ontologically or as separate as a drawing they are jumping into a drawing that has been marked out as graphically separate from the world that they're in um in this film yeah you're right there is no it's really a journey that's undertaken in 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 a direction that we don't quite know we don't know whether they are moving to a different sort of uh, visual order or they're moving into a drawing they are moving into something that is being signposted as an animated space um Quite, quite the opposite. It feels like this could be part of the world that they exist in. But it, but then again, that relationship is quite fuzzy. All that we know is that they are using the um, eponymous bed knob of the film's title to activate the magic bed and move between these different spaces. But in the same way, or sorry, in, in a different way to the way that Mary Poppins does it, you're right that this film sort of tries to at least give the animated sequence a bit of narrative purchase and actually um mary uh, i nearly said i said mary poppins i meant to say miss price there you go i slipped into mary poppins language already um so miss price the character played by angela lansbury um when the children take or when when um the characters take this star and try to bring it back to the real world and it doesn't travel with them she's sort of is a little bit resigned and says oh, i should have realized that you can't take it you know with you from an animated space into a real space but that really to me flags up the the i don't know the film's ambiguous treatment of what it does with its animated spaces and i agree that there's certainly attempt to try and recuperate that animated space into part of the fictional world of the film it's not it's not really playing off its artificiality in the same way as as mary poppins does 
if, if anything, there's a sort of murky relationship between illustration and animation. And like there, 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 there's this book, right? There's this book that the youngest child gets that explains the rules and history of Nabumbu. And he's reading it basically from the first act onwards because he acquires it in, in sort of a, you know, a secondhand shop. Um, and there are all these pictures in it of these characters and at first you're meant to think of it as sort of a child's drawings but he's very insistent that like all the information about this island is mm. here in this book and it turns into it turns into the guide to yeah. the bumbo so so there there are these illustrations that actually and he even there's even a line where he, he like they say something like the bumbo that can't be real and he says well of course it's real here's the picture to prove it mm. um and at the time, the line sort of reads as a, okay. Well, that's obviously silly because that's a that's a that's an illustration. It's just a just a drawing. But actually, it isn't. It is a picture. It's a photograph, so to speak, of this world because it is it is the world as it represents. You know, yeah. it is the same relationship. So, so there's a whole other thing going on here about sort of relationship between illustration, uh, photograph, fo- live action versus animation that the thing's sort of subtly playing with. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I had not really thought about that, that the image is not a photograph or it's not a drawing of the animated space. It becomes a, fo- a truthful photograph of an animated space, which will look like a drawing because it's animated. Um, but that, yes. I, I think that kind of calls back then to the opening sequence that is this sort of really lavish uh, bio tapestry style um, mm. sequence that moves us through time, essentially. Um and it and it, it's and maybe it's part of the film's overall register of trying to confer a degree of authenticity or um, uh, believability or, or repute onto animated images. That the film allows the bio tapestry style um, uh, image series of images at the start as part of its credit sequence to give us the backstory we need. Um, in the same way that the the youngest child's book, um, his little kind of little comic book thing, is is used as a guide. Um, and then equally, what the film does itself with its its animated sequence, I do feel um, that the placement of that animated sequence is is important because it's not it's not being used i don't think as in a, as as you say in in a rupture in a in a way that mary poppins uses it for me and i think i'm right in saying that it comes immediately after the um the sort of trip to portobello um mm-hmm. which which is an interesting sequence for lot, for lots of reasons um, yeah. but and i think we know why um a few dance numbers but um to me, that what the film's trying to do, it, it sort of presents this sequence. So where are we? Uh, Portobello, so Portobello Market, Westish London, uh, around Notting mm-hmm. Hill. Um, it's trying to promote a sort of multicultural element to that to that location. You have at one moment you have I think what looks like soldiers from the British Raj dancing into music, um, and then you have a bit of Scottish music, and it's trying to sort of emphasise this space of activity and energy and so forth. Um, but for me, then then you go into the animation sequence. But for me, that sequence is no more. The animation sequence is no more or no less illusory and imaginary and fictional than the construction of of West London is immediately before it. Um, and actually, I think that relationship is different to the way that Mary Poppins constructs it in in some ways. I feel like um, what the Bedknobs and Broomsticks does is it takes its animation sequence and places it within the broader series of sequences that are incredibly um, kind of imaginary or fantastical or illusory um, as a way of democratising the film as a whole. Maybe it is close to Mary Poppins in terms well, of... Well, yeah, I was about to say, I, think, I mean, I think Mary Poppins does do that. I think, yeah. that, you know, that there's a whole issue 
I mean, I, you know, I, I, people have heard this podcast enough by now to know that I'm quite often very bored by talking about the when does things become a fantasy or not question. But one of the things that I have, you know, that, that I do get asked when I talk about Mary Poppins um, at conferences and things is the whole thing about like, well, isn't it all a fantasy? Um, you know, when, you know, isn't, isn't it basically set in a fantasy world? It doesn't, you know, it's not intrusive. The whole thing's a fantasy because it's all very stylized. And the same's true here. You know, you've got all these sort of, you know, um, you know, characters that are riffing on things that are in the real world. It's not, it's not quite the same as a talking lion, but they're all obviously done in a way that, that isn't inviting you to see this as, as a as a realistic or naturalistic space it's very stylized it's you know from the um you know the dad's army brigade wandering around in this little village to the you know the eccentric characters they meet as you say to this sort of um exoticized um portobello road number um i still don't really know what to do with that i mean other than to just accept everything's a slippery slope the one thing i did think about though if we're riffing on this idea of like animation, live action um, collapsing, but also holding up the difference between the two of them, is the one of the things that did strike me in these in the first sort of ten minutes of the movie, is one of the way is that the stylized feel that the film very quickly communicates is actually not necessarily visual, but but actually quite a lot of it comes through the soundscape um, and the use of sound in the movie because. Because there's not what you're looking at isn't necessarily that stylized. I mean, you've got this great big sort of what country manor esque place that's full of like you know uh, suits of armor and sort of antiquated things. But there's nothing in there that's necessarily overtly stylized or fantastical. But the sound of all of this, from the singing of the soldiers to anything like that, to just something as simple as like you know when characters fall over, you hear a pronounced bump or a squeak of a horn, like almost almost cartoon-like. Um, mm. So it's almost as like if the sound is doing a lot of the work in the real space, quote-unquote, to make it feel like a stylized fantasy. Whilst when we get to Nabumbu, actually what's going on is, is visual as well as sound. A lot of nonsense there. I don't know what you thought there, Chris. Uh, well, uh, the, the soundscape of the film isn't something that, uh, that, that kind of jumped out at me, but actually... That that's interesting to think about. Yeah, it's role in, in animation as a silent medium. In in the animation sequence in Bedknobs and Broomsticks, the sound actually gives gives proceedings a degree of reality, i.e., a sort of hyper real, to use Paul Wells's term, treatment of sound that that objects and, and images make the sound that we expect them to hear, and they're registered as such. So that the sound of the animated sequence can, or the sound scape of the animated sequence gives it a degree of authenticity and grounds it in the real. Whereas actually the opposite is true in lots of ways for the live action sequences, because the soundscape awards the images or the solidity of the images, a sort of cartoonal quality or a um, mm. hyper real quality in a different way, a sort of excessive um, and, and you know, writing on animation sound falls really within two camps. You have the Disney style of Mickey Mousing and quote-unquote realistic applications of sound and then on the other side you have uh, a Warner Brothers style which is more sound sound effects or sound that sounds like a punch or sounds that sound like something but uh, realism isn't necessarily an aim it's it's evocative rather than mimetic um, mm. but, so it seems like a similar relationship is being played out the animation is is a, a Disney style hyper realism whereas the live action sequences i.e 
a large part of the film, um, uses narrative to destabilize and, as you say, add in a bit of fantasy or a register of fantasy to the live action images. Um, I did actually wanted to go back to something um, this this distinction that we're pulling out between the animation and live action and, and and where the fantasy begins and ends and actually it brings this brings me to my point about the role of children in this because um, in Mary Poppins the children don't see the world of London that they're in as illusory or imaginary but for us as spectators it's very much a um, kind of cookie cutter version of yeah. what London looks like um, and then when they go into the animation sequence the opposite they are you know, enthralled by this animated space um, and it is marked out as different. In this film, I think the children's response is the role of children is is important because their response to the animated world is the same as their response to Portobello, is in that they're kind of enraptured in this world. So I think that's the difference, is that they the, the children's reactions to these spaces allow us to read them in a similar way. The animation is no more or no less illusory and imaginary than the Portobello road sequences because the children's reaction to them is the same uh, and it's not the same in Mary Poppins because they don't care that they live in a set of Hollywood London sort of thing they so I, do you know what I mean I think there's a no but but, but they do but, no that's true but they do care that like you know the, the step in time sequence for example or feed the birds or these other moments so it's I think and I think your, your basic point is completely right but I think actually these exchange of looks are really important and when characters announce whether something's fantastical or not is probably the like, it's the real smart answer there is that that's that's where the rhetoric or the thrust of the movie is mm. and and you're right and, and maybe so maybe then it's about what we're being asked to see as objects of fascination yeah. because that's interesting because at, in Mary Poppins it's usually something that's at least augmented by a special effect of some degree so whether that's uh you know the, the the tea party on the ceiling uh, ceiling sequence, or um, you know the the tidy up the nursery bits. You know the characters that are reacting to things that are in this you know nominally live action space as objects of wonder. They're reacting to things that Mary Poppins is physically making magic and transforming. And there's a bit of that going on here. There's lots of um, fun sight gags and things about um, turning people into rabbits. Um, the film has a lot of fun with, and the final sequence I'll leave for us to talk about later. But there's a whole obviously thing about that. But I hadn't thought about that. That quite a lot of what they're being asked to find fascinating is things that are stylized versions of reality. Oh well, whatever that means, right? Mm. But the Portobello Road sequence certainly is something there. They're being asked to find London a magical space. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the the thing with the the the, Mary, the children in Mary Poppins is that they. Their, their intrigue with London only begins when Mary Poppins arrives or actually begins when, when magic occurs and the magic intrudes mm. into their version of London. Um, here, there is nothing to my memory magical or um, uh, fantastical, if, you know, and that's supernatural or whatever it is um, about the film's treatment of portability. That's not a magical space or it's not a space where magic happens, but it is imaginary and illusory from a kind of cultural perspective. It's a, it's a kind of a cultural imaginary that rests on an imagined view of what London is at a particular time. Um, and so they they sort of treat it as, as this spectacle in the same way they treat the, the sort of, well, they treat the sort of shows that they go into, the musical performances that they end up seeing in the animated world as well. Um, for them, it sort of doesn't matter what media they're in. 
they still find the world fascinating. Whereas in Mary Poppins, the children don't find the world that they live in fascinating until Mary Poppins arrives and starts to destabilize it and add magic to it. Um, whereas I think for an audience, we find the set design of Hollywood's version of London really interesting. Um, but I do think, yeah, the role of children mm. in, as these sort of uh, these mediators and we talked about this before when we did when we did the original Mary Poppins that obviously a lot of it is filtered through the children themselves they go and stay with with um, Miss Price this sort of apprentice witch it's it's the role of children being used to navigate this idea of wonder but um, yeah I do think their reaction to the Portobello sequence is is interesting because it tells us that as I said no matter what media they're in they find they find the world outside of their you know um, own world Spectacular. Portobello Road, Portobello Road, street where the riches of ages are stowed. Anything and everything a chap can unload is sold off the barrow in Portobello Road. You'll find what you want in the Portobello Road. Okay, so this is one of those moments where we pause the podcast um, and stop talking as we were then yes. and start talking live. Well, not live, but we're live. Always, we're always live yeah. and not live. This is it's hard uh, to record in advance at yeah. the moment that you're recording. Sure, this isn't a live stream. No, so, that's um, not what we've paused the podcast to talk to you about. No, right? we have paused the podcast to talk to you um, listeners uh, and potential contributors, actually, um, about the blog element of the website. So if you visit uh, fantasy-animation.org, you'll see that we run a, a weekly blog. So the blog itself uh, pulls in different voices from lots of, of different places, whether you're an animator, creative practitioner, academic, uh, whether you've been to a film festival, an academic conference, uh, whether you are, uh, you know, been to the cinema, seen an uh, animated fancy television program. Uh, we'd uh, love could to be hear... an animator who's just produced a new work yes. and wants to talk about it, reflect on it uh, creatively. It could, it could be, be um, someone who's trying to get into film journalism, who wants to have a go at writing a review. Um, you could just be a fan and love a particular uh, uh, subject matter and you'd always want to talk about it yeah we've had a lot of people kind of get in contact via the website um, we have a little comments function so if you send a little message to us um, with your potential idea then we'll have a yeah. conversation about commissioning in it there's a tab isn't there at the top that says something like contact us yes. and, and submit form so you that. can contact us uh, and also you can follow us on social media so give us an at on Facebook send us a message um so give us an at on Twitter or send us a message on Facebook uh, and we'll get in touch yeah. Uh, and yeah it'd be great to, to kind of publish some of the new work that's being done or, or um, hear from people that perhaps wouldn't have the opportunity to publish elsewhere um, get in touch please do otherwise we'll just get back to the show let's Sort of, I don't know what I think about the Portobello Road sequence. The reason I wanted to talk about it in terms of its, you know, its problematic but very interesting sort of representation of multiculturalism is I remember yeah. um, you, you and I, Chris, in a former life, uh, when we were allowed to be <laughs> in the same room together, um, taught a course um, on London and film together. Um, and um, I, I, I obviously... Uh, made them watch Mary Poppins, and you ob and you obviously made them watch. Um, did you? Yeah, did you make them watch Flushed Away or something like that? There, there, there were. I mean, we 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 covered many and all kinds of things, but um, I would definitely have shown shots from uh, Flushed Away, Run Fat Boy Run, and Garfield Garfield: A Tale of Two Kitties. Well, of course, you would have, and I, and I think we both showed them Skyfall. But um, we did. But, but but I had to do a session on Notting Hill. 
Um, and during that session, I chose to, sh in my lecture, I chose to sort of talk a little bit about the Portobello Road sequence in uh, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, because I thought it'd be a useful one for international students to sort of think about the politics of gentrification that's both going on in the, the Richard Curtis movie and in, you know, Notting Hill more generally. Um, because, you know, as 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 problematic as the Portobello Road sequences is, it clearly identifies an area of London and celebrates its melting potness, for want of a better word. And that's the, the key distinguishing feature of this part of London in that movie. Um, and then here we are, like 30 years later, in the Richard Curtis Hugh Grant vehicle. And obviously, one of the things a lot of people note about that movie is that there's only white faces in it. Um, and it's a middle class version of, of Notting Hill that has then created a middle class version of Notting Hill since then, because yes. more people have you know, become attracted to it. It's become more and more pricey. Um, whilst actually, if anyone w wanted to walk around that area beyond the sort of streets in the Notting Hill film, it actually, well, I don't know about clo more closely resembles Bednalls and Broomsticks, but it certainly um, is much more of a cultural, um, national, ethnic melting pot than um, than than it's suggested in in more recent movies. So I don't know. I I, I kind of almost look back with a certain element of fondness for the Portobello Road sequence because I think in a, in a way, what it's encouraging us to find magical are positive things. The way it's doing it is by trading on some really pernicious stereotypes, and you know one can't help acknowledge that. But you said it, and I, I agree with you. The magic of that sequence is in its sense of diversity and and the bringing together of cultures and and it encourages us to find that a source of wonder and i find that kind of a politically progressive thing to do yeah it's it's a sequence obviously it's set largely um or uses musical numbers and obviously there's a lot been written about musicals entertainment utopia um the musical is this sort of utopian space but also you know the musical resting on discourses of sort of colonialism because it's also about um being able to use and use up space as you wish you take that street you go and dance and sing mm. in it and then that becomes your space and so there's something interesting again about th th that portobello road sequence you have a musical number that musical or the, the music the song happens to be in the air and so there's a bigger question about entertainment utopia integration i.e the way that musical mm -hmm. numbers are integrated into a narrative that is then mapped onto the fact that the sequence is about the integration of um you know bagpipe music with calypso music and there's something quite provocative about about that multicultural sort of collision. Um, but I do think that the children are framed as being out of place because obviously their dialogue and their accent is it gives them uh, an East London, you know, uh, um, grounding. And so it's it's sort of a fantasy of the of the West that that is then immediately undercut with Bruce Forsyth. But we'll get onto that. <laughs> Um, but there I'm really glad you mentioned Bruce Forsyth. Um, <laughs> if, for people who haven't seen the film, that reference is going to mean nothing. But and it yeah. looks like I've gone, yeah. I've gone bonkers. But um, but I, I nearly texted you before you watched it just to say yes, it is him, and let mm -hmm. you find out what that meant like later. Yeah, um, um, it, it, it is and, and and was him, and and it, you know it was, it was wonderful. He plays a, a character <laughs> called Swinburne. Um, the thing I was going to mention actually is therefore what this film because you know it's a period piece and it was it was originally so the film comes out in 71 the novel itself came out in 57 so in the immediate post-war period and I couldn't help watching the film and and again going back to this London course that we that we taught together um the role of sort of wartime propaganda and and 
films made by Humphrey Jennings, London Can Take It, the mythology and the you know the blitz spirit, which of course is something um, that is circulating in our minds at the moment, and and uh, the role of nostalgia in taking Britain back or making America great again, or you know the, re- the how nostalgia is invoked as a reason to do lots and lots of things for good and bad, um, and so this uh, evocation of the blitz spirit um, in the early nineteen seventies, calling back to the post-war or the war period in a novel that was released in 47 um, and what that then means for this mashing together of Scott. So I've got on my notes, Scottish music, Calypso music, <laughs> London can take it. And I've got that sort of, I don't know, it, it's, it's creating a, a fortitude or it's, it's adding something to the Blitz spirit by taking the Blitz spirit that a lot of writers and, and historians have, have, um, have questions whether the blitz spirit quote unquote exists, whether it was, whether it was outward facing, whether it was more inward facing, whether it was, you know, it's, it's part of a, a sort of um, cultural history or a, a cultural historical narrative. Um, it doesn't really matter that the blitz spirit was illusory or intangible. It was something, it was like, it was like the musical. It was like the song was in the air, the blitz spirit was in the air. Um, and so there is again, something quite provocative about, the way in which the film is using the Portobello Road sequence to, as you say, create this sense of euphoria and utopia and, and being quite progressive in lots of ways and then not in others. Um, and then how that then links back to the genre, i.e. musical, the question of fantasy, the post-war period. So that Portobello Road sequence is very, yeah, very sort of rich in terms of what it's doing, for which I, you know, I don't have a concrete answer, but it certainly opens up a lot of questions. The other thing it does, I guess, in terms of the narrative and, and, and extending it back out into the wider film is that it sets up this um, contrast um, that the film then plays with throughout about the difference between sort of true magic and showmanship, right? Mm-hmm. In the, There's this narrative uh, revelation in that opening sort of, well, it's about, about a third of the way through the movie um, and it introduces David Tomlinson's character and David Tomlinson's character is set up as the mentor figure of um, Angela Lansbury's character. You notice I'm not saying any character names. Listeners will know why. You're so good um, at characters normally, though. You're so good at character names. <laughs> um, Angela Lansbury's character. Um, uh, yes, she's sort of. You know, she's been writing to this sort of magical wizard living up in London, who's been sending her spells and and techniques to practice. And then he suddenly stops doing it, and he cancels the school. And so she wants to find him and find out why. And what she finds out is that he's a sort of, you know, he's a, a street performer. He's a mag- magician in the in the sort of real life sense of the world. He does tricks, and actually not very good at th- doing tricks. Um, and the book, the think spells he's been reading out there are, as far as he's concerned, from a random book he's happened to found um, with lots of nonsense written in it. Um, mm. So, and then it then plays with that in the sense that you know um, he is identified as quite a selfish character because he essentially wants to use magic, um, well, one, to con people about magic, but also to use magic for material gain. Um, Whilst um, Angela Lansbury's character wants to learn magic actually as sort of part of her war effort. Again, this blitz spirit doing her bit. And at the end of the movie, she says, well, I was never actually going to be a witch. You know, I'm not, I'm not cut out for being a witch. I just did it because it was needed, you know. Yeah. So there's a whole thing about when magic is needed and not needed. So I always find interested when they start dramatising magic in films because usually they dramatise it in the way that, that the filmmakers come on the side of the villains because they are hucksters. They are showman people. They are making 
films that show us things that aren't real for material gain. They are David Tomlinson, not mm -hmm. Angela Lansbury. Um, but the way they play with that makes us see magic as this sort of virtuistic, um, virtuous, I should say, you know, altruistic um, exercise, which is kind of interesting too. Well, yeah, I've not thought about the the sort of showmanship aspect of it, uh, but again, I suppose that that fits into um, the film's broader rhetoric of of kind of belief, and 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 I think the first song in the musical, because um, it has a smattering of songs, but it takes twenty seven minutes. I noted for the first musical number, but no, by the by, um, is that. Uh, well, there's the, the Dad's Army song, which I can't remember what it's called. But it's not, you know, I, I keep calling them Dad's Army. They're not <laughs> no. called them, It's the Home Guard. Yeah, and yeah. they do a song at the beginning. But yes, you're right. Then it's then it does take a while. There are some gaps in between the songs, aren't there? Yeah. So this is Miss Price, Angela Lansbury, saying um, to the children, that you're, essentially that you're at the age of not believing. Um, mm. uh, and so I think that one, I think that sets up their in kind of incredulous reactions to, for the remainder of the film, whether it's to the fantasy of West London or it's the animated sequence and, and so forth, it's it's the role of children in, in these kinds of fantasy films um, that play on this or that hinge on this broader thing about belief and, and doubt. But actually, as you say, it's, it's her own belief and her own doubt because she believes that she's, you know, that she is enthralled to this magician and needs one more spell uh, and is written to, unfortunately, to say that the, the school that she's, or the course, effectively, the course has been um, curtailed, essentially, mm. um, this correspondence school that she's um, that she's um, enrolled in. So, yeah, it's, again, it, it uses, it takes, and this is what I mean about the tonal shifts in the film that are quite delightful, where you go between uh, the British war effort, the home front, um, and then you go into fantasy, and then you come back again, and you have sort of... Uh, you know the Nazis, the Nazi army reappear, and and actually the final twenty minutes is really a, a sort of shootout. It becomes it becomes went the day well. I said to you before we started, it goes from Mary Poppins to went the day well um, in the blink of an eye, the, the turn of a, um, a bed knob. Um, but yeah, the, the 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 whole thing about belief and doubt, I think, is as much to do with the children, or as much as to do with her is is the children. Um, and yeah, it's interesting that she kind of co-ops that into into a into a, I, I wanted to do magic simply because i wanted to do my part and obviously the final the the, the act of the, the final act of the film involves david tomlinson's character um sort of doing something a little bit more i don't know virtuous or doing something a little yeah. bit more worthy but he'll 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 return um so this whole thing about kind of doing your part and and maybe folds into this thing about belief and doubt and and um, yeah, the question of this, this if you're not at the age of believing, at what point do you then believe? Because she clearly, she believes in in, um, in the magician in a way that she, Emilius Brown, in the way that she, in the way that she shouldn't. Um, what was I going to say? There's a couple of other things. Oh, I've got a note about Sooty Air, and it reminded me that it felt like the characters in the film had actually watched Mary Poppins. So there's a bit where the children arrive in London and go, oh, can't you can't you smell it? We're in London. It's the sooty air as if like, yeah, don't you know that London is how it is in Mary Poppins? It's this sort mm. of, you know, this wondrous space, um, even though we're told at the start of the film that London is obviously quite a dangerous place and they have to be evacuated away from it. When they come back to it, it becomes this magical fantasy place, actually. Um but there we go. Well. Yeah, one one um, word of war actually seemed to exist. It's it's mainly an issue of like gangsters and crim criminals are, yeah. the, are the threat really. In love. it's not. It's there's nothing actually about the war in that sequence. That's a break from the war. All the um, I can you know all, all the references to war are actually back in the in the sort of idyllic village that they've been evacuated to. 
So I hadn't really yeah. thought about that, but it's true. Well, actually, let's let's take this as an opportunity to quickly talk about Bruce Forsyth because um, a lot sure. of films in certainly in the post-war period, uh, a series of British crime films made after about forty-five into the early fifties, um, are dealing with things like the black market and dealing with kind of street crime and and this figure of the spiv that's perhaps embodied. Um, by, I mean, a film like Brighton Rock, but actually a film that I, let's go back to this this course that we, we talked about earlier, uh, night, a film like Night in the City, um, where you have these sorts of wheeler-dealer um, spiv characters that are like the private eye of film noir in that they're not normal civilians, but they're also not the police and they exist in this sort of grey middle ground. Um, but there's a lot of post-war British movies that trade on this spiv cycle um, or the, this spiv kind of character in these spiv cycle movies. Um, and Bruce Forsyth's character Swinburne is exactly that. You know, he he tries to sell them something quick. He opens up his jacket and he's got a bunch of jewellery hanging inside. Uh, and then when they show no interest, he then opens up a, and reveals a knife. Uh, and then so you, you have that sort of you're right that the in that in that in that moment, the the war effort is forgotten and there's a different kind of uh, villainy. And it's one it's a villainy that was born out of post-war rationing that was still in effect. Um, black market, that that kind of thing, the, the underworld. Um, which, which I think, yeah, which is embodied beautifully in this film by Sir Bruce Forsyth. But interestingly, sort of, you know, it, they're using a post-war sort of, uh, you know, genre conventions and, yeah. and putting it back into a war context, which again makes this sort of idea that this is in some way mm. claiming to represent reality very contested and, and um, you yeah. know, difficult to, to say about it. Yeah, it's a good point. It's a good um, point. Well, should we talk about the sort of final finale, the final third of the, of the movie and, um, you know, yes. spoiler alert, kind of stuff yeah yeah um, i yeah i mean very very quickly actually before that because it's a question that i was oh, sure. never asked was was this question about low fantasy because right we've talked a lot on the podcast about high fantasy um and so low fantasy is something i'm not too familiar with it's it's uh, certainly the genre of the borrowers is something like low fantasy and, and and norton's original book on which this film is based is described as low fantasy so i just wondered actually for my own for my own interest what what is low fantasy Sure. Well, we play with a lot of like, um, you know, sub genres or, or labels for fantasy on the podcast. And the problem is that they're all a bit messy because, you know, one um, idea comes along and people like it and use it and then it's refined and changed and altered. Um, and so, so, you know, they're all kind of competing and some of them are, um, are synonyms and some of them are not quite synonyms, but basically uh, low low fantasy comes out of an attempt to define two different types of fantasy that was sort of big amongst uh, fantasy scholarship in the sort of 70s and 80s, which is simply a distinction between high and low fantasy. And the distinction was that low fantasy is a film set in our world in which fantasy enters, and high fantasy is a, is a story set in a world of fantasy. So the labels we've been using on the podcast i guess guess are immersive and intrusive right. but they're not necessarily synonyms basically those labels which the, the immersive intrusive portal quest and liminal um first time i've said liminal on the podcast we'll get Love to it. that at some point but not today um but those four labels are actually uh, coined by farrah mendelssohn and and they were an attempt to sort of um make a make it a bit more sophisticated because really low and high fantasy as we as you as we've said on this podcast, sort of to describe this simply as a low fantasy where fantasy enters reality sort of explains, but it's really it more obscures than it does highlight what's going on. Mm -hmm. So maybe a better thing to think about with this 
is is perhaps some of the actually maybe help you know maybe the labels help us to try and articulate what the live action sequence is doing sorry what the animation sequence is doing in that what we've sort of got in this movie is two-thirds of it is what we might call an intrusive fantasy so a fantasy where elements of magic enter into our reality um and then other bits of it are might what we call a portal quest fantasy so that's where um, characters from our world go into um, another world, and and we could then have lots of fun about talking about whether the Portobello Road sequence is an example of them using an um, um, intrusive rhetoric or a portal quest rhetoric. Um, perhaps actually, the reason we're struggling to work out the Portobello Road is that part of the the rhetoric, part of the pleasure in that scene, is a sense of magic that is communicated by being led into that world by people not from that world yeah yeah well, uh, which is different from say you know mary poppins turning up and tidying up the nursery because that is very much her entering a space that is normalized um and all the other characters are normalized as opposed to her magic but it, but it seems like the and this goes back to this the point about the music is that um if a lot of musical discourses around the integration of music into the narrative and that, that narrative and, and spectacle in this case that they are not exclusive but spectacle has narrative to it and if you cut out the musical numbers that the, the story wouldn't make sense um and so it seems like there's a similar bargain that's being struck or negotiation between fantasy and non-fantasy elements um that that map quite nicely onto the musical if we talk in the musical about this integration that, that as i've said before that music is in the air um and is beautifully sort of uh yeah, the transition between narrative and spectacle is smoothed over. Um, here we have a similar rhetoric, as you're suggesting, between fantasy, that fantasy is either part of the world, i.e. in, in um, immersive or uh, high fantasy then perhaps, or and then you have something that is intrusive or low fantasy, where the fantasy intrudes mm -hmm. into the, the fictional world, which is a, the same as musicals. You know, the music often represents a fantasy moment that intrudes into the narrative and destabilizes it when the perfect quote-unquote musical would, wouldn't, would smooth over that transition. And so I do think there's, yeah, something quite um, nice about that overlap between the way that scholars talk about the Hollywood musical and it's the role of fantasy and then the role of fantasy in the way that, that you're sort of describing it through these as you say these often increasingly fuzzy categories but at least in the case of something like bedknobs and broomsticks allows us not to actually maybe the rhetoric of fantasy's biggest um uh well the biggest consequence of using the rhetoric of fantasy is not actually to determine what the fantasy is doing but what the non-fantasy is doing sure and actually it, it, it starts to articulate with some precision what we can talk about these tonal shifts you know, really the biggest tonal shift is the different kinds of interplays between reality and fantasy going on that's, yeah. that's happening um and and that that to me like the big the biggest tonal shift is to to sort of um bring the discussion somewhere towards the conclu conclusion is is this is the shift from going to this colorful magical island of of Nabumbu with full of talking animals where we get this sort of you know uh really great fun uh football sequence soccer sequence yes. um where the animals play um soccer with one another uh, and there's all kinds of sight gags. It's, you know, it's all, there's lots of, you know, nice, um, almost callbacks to sort of, you know, 1920s, 1930s Disney, because it's, you know, there's the bit where a, a crocodile, um, you know, someone stands on a crocodile's tail and it, and its mouth jaw jumps out of its mouth and, and jumps into the, um, I think, a hippo's bottom and things like that, you know, proper good, um, what, mm -hmm. you know, 
plasmatic sight gags um, uh, are going on. And then you go from that to an equally elaborate and magical sequence set against the invasion of Britain by Nazi Germany. Yeah. Um, so, shall we go with yes. that one? Right, so... Um... First of all, I think the sports sequence is interesting because uh, recent work that's done by Paul Wells about the relationship between animation and sport. And it's interesting that you mention um, plasmaticness there because um, Wells's book, Animation, Sport and Culture, sort of looks at the ways in which animation is often connected to, to sport. And in the case of Bedknobs and Broomsticks, this sort of um, soccer match, or I think one of the children says it's a weird sort of game that they play here. So there are three ways that animation and sport kind of collide. The first one is the long tradition as you're pointing out of games that are represented in animation um, and I think this sequence in Bedknobs and Broomsticks does it does it beautifully because it plays it for comedy and it kind of gives us the question of what would happen if a hippo played football or what would happen if this animal played you know a bull played well the bull would be punctured or the hippo would swallow it and it sort of uses uses animation or the collision between animation and sport for a lot of sight gags um, the second way that they're kind of colliding is um, animation as a tool to visualize sports so um the use of animation in i guess sports analysis is quite an interesting area you know the way in which we have these on-screen graphics motion graphics that that visualize elements of the um uh the sporting occasion and then the third element is animation and sport are connected um at a kind of intrinsic level and wells's book is about uh, the relationship between animation and sport and what they share in terms of values so they're about creating motion this sort of intrinsic visual quality so he talks about uh, a serve by roger federer right at the start of his book um the beauty and aesthetics you know sport as an art form um, and then there's a quote sport is a stylized practice or as a vehicle imbued with metaphor which he then says well that could be a description of animation so there's some interesting recent work on this sort of collision between animation and sport that wells has written in his book animation sport and culture and was recently the subject of a um uh, an exhibition up in manchester the beautiful frame but i thought that was a really that that chimed with me in terms of this, mm. this emergent scholarly tradition of what animation and sport might have um, obviously in the case of bedknobs and broomsticks it falls largely in the first category this sort of playful representation of a sporting event in animation and what what animation can therefore do to the 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 rules of the game if you like it can it can manipulate them by having these anthropomorphic characters um play ball essentially um but yes, and then the tone shifts and we go from uh, a song, substitutionary locomotive to these sort of inanimate objects taking on a life of their own to, as you say, this all out assault, the Nazi invasion, armour coming to life, uh, victory for England and St. George. Uh, yeah. And I don't really know what to say about that other than... Yeah, I don't really know what to say about that. I find it an, an, uh, an interesting sequence. I Of all the bits I could remember... I could I could remember the animation sequence, and I could remember some of the you know, uh, you know, visually beats visual beats along the way. But I'd completely forgotten about this last sequence, and I think I often I think last time I watched it, I'd forgotten about it. Now I had a sort of deja vu of saying the same thing again, which is God, I've forgotten about this. <laughs> it's it's very weird, um, and I'm not really sure why. But one thing that struck me is that. It's quite an odd thing to have in a movie that's sort of this beloved and nostalgic and in the background of everyone's lives. When, when quite often, you know, even movies made today can be claimed to be incredibly controversial because they dare to blend elements of fantasy, comedy, 
musical with war with with war and in particular the second world war and in particular the holocaust now i guess that last bit isn't dealt with here it's really just about the military um invasion you know one force invading another yeah um there are some vague sort of references to nazi ideology but not not you know more sort of on a you know uh very 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 sort of cod thing there's no real interrogation of it um but but it is odd to have at the end of this disney movie um them playing with the idea of a of a realistic nazi invasion and then using that as this great big elaborate set piece to um to, to sort of, you know, as you say, there's lots of sight gags, there's lots of humour, Nazis get poked in the bum, you know, it's it's very strange for a 1971 film, you know, when, you know, as recently as this year, we've had things like Jojo Rabbit um, that yeah. have caused a huge amount of controversy by, by doing things that are no more aggressive or assaultive than what's going on here. So I guess, you know, say what you want in response to this winding commentary on it chris but if i have a question it's like why does disney why does this get away with it and why do we not think of it as as odd or ill taste of other movies if there is an answer um i mean i'm gonna say something that we've never said on the podcast which is i think this sequence is about animation alex <laughs> i think it's, i mean it's, of, of course you know the the, the harry Housen fan in me went oh that's interesting that you have these sort of sentient knights um uh, and then, but I think what it does on a narrative level, the sequence is that it allows for um, a narrative of kind of or, or a theme of protectionism and heroism. That um, if we're saying that uh, Emilius Brown, so David Tomlinson's character, is a showman and a sort of charlatan in lots of ways, and, and we first see him uh, in the street with his very rudimentary and not very good, as one of the children says, magic show, this is a chance for him to sort of you know reclaim his heroism a little bit. So part of what he does despite getting on a train or thinking about getting on a train back to London, what he ends up doing is staying and protecting the children and, and Miss Price um, from, from Nazi invasion. So I think, yeah, on a thematic level, it, it sort of allows, it's a very strange way of doing it, but it uses the second world war context as a way of forging and securing certain uh, narrative themes that we would associate, I guess, with Disney products more generally, i.e., you know, um, the family, the restoration of a certain kind of family, um, heroism, and, uh, you know, I think it's it's an interesting way of doing it, but I think it certainly allows Miss Price to some extent and definitely Amelius Brown to sort of, um, yeah, to sort of become, become heroes in the eyes of the children, but also themselves. Um, uh, so, um, but a part of the reason I say that it's about animation is because obviously, as I mentioned before, you have this song, that's about bringing animal objects to life. And so it's about the pleasure of, of sort of bringing things, bringing things to life and doing so through these sort of sentient, these um, sentient suits of armor, I guess on, as well on a narrative level, it allows it kind of loops back to the, the beginning in terms of this bio tapestry style um, uh, script, because it, it sort of shows Nazi, the Nazis trying to destroy tradition, um, armor relics, all that sort of stuff, it sort of makes a villain out of them whilst at the same time enforcing the character's heroism. Um, so the short answer to your question is, I don't know. And that was the mm. answer. But it's, it is bonkers, because like, there's this whole, like, you know, there's lots of, you know, uh, sh- you know, invokes chivalric knights, it invokes all kinds of sort of, you know, uh, you know, not even just like 18th, 19th century Brit- British imperialist legacy, but like just sort of, you know, you know, as I say, sort of just sort of very sort of broad notions of British history and, and heritage. And they literally battle against 
Nazism. Like, if this film was made in 1945, <laughs> I would understand that sequence more. Um, I don't quite get what it's doing. Maybe it's just a simple case of they adapted the novel and, and they didn't think of an didn't think it was a problem and didn't think of an alternative thing of doing it, so they just did it and, and emphasised the things you're saying. But it's it's very peculiar and, and not benign at all. And, and this is a movie that I think a lot of people have quite a benign relationship to in that it seems to be a movie people have picked because it's always on in their background in the child in childhood. And it's a film we've seen loads of times and that sort of stough. It's a very odd sequence. Yeah, I know. I, I don't know. I think the um, obviously, given that the novel was written in in forty seven, that again makes yeah. makes sense. But yeah. it seems to be the peril of then adapting it in in seventy one, um, bringing in songs that were re originally written for Mary Poppins, adding that into the mix, um, and so it sort of gives it a historical element. But you're right; it's a very um, it's a it, it fits perfectly with the again. But I think that 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 last 20 minute sequence then is no more or no less illusory than the, than the animation sequence. You know, the animation sequence becomes one in a series of absolutely bonkers set pieces to which the children are often observers. Um, really. Mm. It makes me, it makes me think maybe like um, there's more to say about this idea of um, part of this rhetoric of intrusion needs to ha- happen within a, a reality that's not quite reality and then something else makes it really not quite reality and i'm just thinking here that like there's there's a very different kind of movie in this in that if 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 what we were watching was a you know was something that the last third alludes to which is a sort of world of real life historical consequences and potential um danger and potent you know or the actual world as it really is then we'd be looking at something, you know, more like the works of Guillermo del Toro, which which is an in, which are intrusive fantasies. But sort of what what makes their, the films feel very interesting in his work is like you know the way it interplays real harsh verisimilitude with fantastical images. Yeah, and so maybe part of the pleasure of these kind of movies is that it intrudes upon a world that never was reality to begin with. Um. And what on earth that means in terms of the role of fantasy, the role of magic, the role of belief and disbelief um, is probably a subject for another podcast. Luckily, we'll probably do one in the future. Well, yeah, because I mean, normally the bits that aren't fantasy or the bits that are not spectacle, i.e. narrative, are the things that are used to qualify or tame. You know, you know what spectacles are because you know what they're not and they're not narrative. Mm. But in your case, the, the fantasy, as you say, the the it becomes more difficult to identify the, or then the rhetoric of fantasy, more difficult to identify the fantastical components because the real world that it's intruding into was always one that was, that was weighted in fantasy or something. So I wonder whether it's, you know, it's a playful collision between real world history in lots of ways and uh, magic things that couldn't possibly exist. Um, does the real world historical context, and that's why I think it's an interesting way to begin the film with this this bio tapestry because it really grounds yeah. it in in a certain real world history to sort of like okay, what we're going to tell you is historical, um, and therefore I don't know what the role of fantasy does within that, but um, it seems to bookend the film with with this sort of manuscript, if you like, versus. Um, this this climactic sequence where he then, um, you know, spoiler, Emilius Brown effectively joins the joins the war effort, um, goes off and enlists in the army, uh, joins the home guard, and then off he goes. And then, so what what ends up happening is that you have you have I don't know that the the fantasy and the enchantment has to 
has to give way because the the real world's happening. Um, again, I, I don't have anything other to, else to say other than that. But um, well, well, a final thing I'll say then, because the thoughts occurred to me is that I, I I like these labels that we use and and the the works that they come from are really really useful because they're actually describing literary fiction. But I do also brisk a little bit at the idea of of calling you know anything happening in an audiovisual medium like cinema um rhetoric yeah rhetoric seems like a clunky way of describing it because it's not rhetoric it's not the mastery of language it's the mastery mm. of um sensory experiences so maybe a, a better metaphor for what this film's doing in terms of the role of fantasy and reality would be to think of something visual like say a jack-in-the-box <laughs> and there's very much a sense in these films, you know, Mary Poppins, um, Bedknobs and Boobix, all these kind of family movies that rely on a, a certain level of intrusion into reality from fantasy, that what we're watching, at least in the opening 20 minutes, is a jack-in-the-box world. Because mm. we know there's fantasy coming. We've bought a ticket to Bedknobs and Broomsticks, not uh, Nazis and soldiers. That's you it. know, we know it's coming. Um, we we sense that it's coming. The, the feel of these worlds with their exaggerated characters and stylized sort of mise-en-scene editing sound, um, sort of, it's almost like, you know, it, 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 it's waiting for something to burst out of it. And it's like the characters can't see it themselves. And then when it does come, it's not a surprise, it's a sort of release of this tension that's built up like a jack-in-the-box. Yeah. So jack-in-the-box worlds, there we are. I've made one, a new term up for us to play with. Well, there we go. That's that's immediately going straight onto the blurb description of this episode. Listen, we discuss all kinds of things. You know, the Nazis destroying tradition, um, the role of fantasy, and then Jack in the Boxes. It write it writes itself, Alex. It writes. Well, itself. well that was a fun hour. Um, any final thoughts you'd like to raise, Chris? Um, I mean, I have lots of thoughts about um, Bruce Forsyth, but that's probably <laughs> probably for another episode. Um, no, I don't think so. I think the, what, was um, it was it nice to see him? Oh, it was lovely to see him. To see him. Nice. Um, the, uh, I mean, I don't know. I think the the uh, evacuation narrative, as I said, I wasn't familiar with the film beforehand. And so that sort of historical sensibility was re a real surprise. Um, that sort of evacuation narrative, the Blitz, the Blitz narrative. Um, I mean, we, we could probably probe, as I said, the film's relationship to um, the representation of the war effort in films. And I wonder whether the Bednoff and Broomstick sort of citation points um, are are cinema's representation of this this event and as i said there's a lots of when i was watching it it felt like there were these references to um to sort of uh yeah uh, passport to pimlico or you know when mm. they well probably um the only other note i've got is actually that the film was um was nominated for um for uh, uh, the oscar for best special of visual effects um and so there's a bunch of stuff beyond the animation sequence you know like optical effects there's the point of view yeah. of the bed at some point it looks a little bit like experimental animation you have a bit of tinting uh, this kind of lovely color uh, technicolor so you have these sort of bombardment of, of geometric shapes and obscure sort of um uh, experimental style images that occur whenever the bed transitions from one space to another. And so I thought um, just to give me a little shout out to the, the bits in a film that we could, that we could kind of um, label animation that aren't the Disney animation sequence, because there's a lot of other stuff going on in terms of uh, like mate shots, but, but these sort of op optical effects that are used to, to kind of connote the magic of the bed itself. Um, and so I just wanted to give a, yeah, a shout out to the optical effects. Yeah, good shout out. I want to give a shout out to David Tomlinson and Angela Lansbury. Yes. Um, 
you know, I mean, there's nothing to say other than thank you for you two being yeah. in films. Yeah. Um, they're both magnificent. Um, playing a slightly different role, Tomlinson, than obviously um, George Banks, but um, but um, still very charismatic. Uh, and then just a final bit of trivia, just to bring it back to Mary Poppins, I'm afraid, one more final time. I just think it's interesting with the, 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 the one sequence that is that it's pretty famous that a lot of the songs here were at least um, considered for Mary Poppins and then the Sherman Brothers wrote a few more and reused some of them, back to yeah. this reheating metaphor. Um, the one sequence that is pretty much just lifted from the pre-production of Mary Poppins and transferred here is the bobbing along in the beautiful Briny Sea sequence because originally in the Mary Poppins um, there is a, there was a, you know, they, they were riffing on lots of bits from the books, and there is a sequence in one of the books where the kids jump into a bathtub and it turns into the sea, and they play around with some fish, and then they come back up. Um, so they were tempted to do that in the Mary Poppins bit, but they decided to go with the Jolly Holiday thing instead. Um, but they'd written the song and they'd done some pre-production and, and sort of storyboarded that, and they literally just picked that up and used it in uh, Bedknobs and Broomsticks. And then when we get Mary Poppins Returns, yeah. they then do the same sequence again, but give it a new song. So that sequence sort of has been now used in three movies, mm -hmm. the, the going underwater sequence. So that's just a bit of trivia there for everybody. Well, I, I definitely think, as I said, when I was watching Bedknobs and Broomsticks, I thought, cool, this is a lot like... I mean, it is like Mary Poppins, but it's also like, yeah, as I said, Mary Poppins Returns. So the whole premise mm. of Mary Poppins Returns, when they go on to the into the sort of... Um, Dalton sequence, the animation sequence that we talked about on a previous episode, um, and they sort of go to a show, they go into a big top, and it's very similar to, to what happens in, in Bedknobs and Broomsticks when they enter into, um, you know, it's an animated world with a culture and with rituals and with forms of entertainment, um, and you have the big top that is here replaced with with kind of a, a band and then sport, and so I, yeah, there's definitely something about about Mary Poppins, Mary Poppins Returns, and Bedknobs and Broomsticks that we that we could we could tease out for longer, but won't sadly as time as as time has beaten us. Right, I feel I feel um, I think that's enough enough on Bedknobs and Broomsticks. I hope listeners are um, happy. We've um, we've said what we needed to say about it, and thanks for the choice. I didn't necessarily think that was going to get picked, but obviously the the Disney the, so far it's three for nothing in terms of Disney triumphing. So what we're going to do just for the short term is we'll keep doing these, but we're going to do them once a month rather than every episode. We'll sort of return to our slightly normal format in the other episodes. Um, so we'll do another one of these in two episodes time. So do keep your suggestions coming in um, for your favorite feel good fantasy animations. You can use the hashtag feel good or you can just tag us. Uh, we're on Facebook. Um, we're on uh, Instagram and we're on Twitter all at fan anim research. F-A-N-A-N-I-M research. Tell us your favourite uh, film. I'll put it in the hat and we'll do another tournament in a couple of weeks' time to decide um, what we study uh, next. So I'm um, excited to see what you guys want to, want to watch, want us to watch, I should say. Chris, um, any? I was about to say, is there anything you want to plug? I don't know why I don't ask you that every week, but I'm going to do it this time. Anything you'd like to plug? No, I mean, I'm involved in a podcast with a dubious character, but uh, <laughs> we can we can leave the advertising for that one. Um, just, yeah, just to say thanks to everybody to, for, for kind of submitting their, their stuff and giving us, uh, essentially giving me and Alex something to, to do and, and stuff to watch. And um, above everything else, it's sort of, yeah, I mean, it's, it's much appreciated to get an insight into the kinds of things that you are, um, you are watching in times that are becoming increasingly, um, yeah, increasingly unsteady. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that's been us for another week. Uh, you can find us always on fantasy-animation.org. Read our latest blog posts. If you want to submit a blog post, um, get in touch. We'd love to hear from some people. 
um, and download our, our episodes, why not revisit the Mary Poppins episode or the Mary Poppins Returns episode? Make it a trilogy. Mm-hmm. There you go. That's an afternoon. Yeah. Um, we're all looking for things to do. Um, otherwise, we will see you next time on the podcast um, and take care in the meantime. Bye. How pleasant bobbing along, bobbing along on the bottom of the beautiful briny sea. What a chance to get a better peep at the plants and creatures of the deep. We glide far below the rolling tide. Serene through the bubbly blue and green.